Netflix dropped a bomb. Tesla dropped a bomb. Stocks got crushed. IBM's results weren't great. So now we got now we got the you know, but those are those, those are the junior leaguers. Now we got the heavy hitters on deck. We got Meta. We got Amazon. You got Alpha. We got Microsoft. Apple comes up pretty soon. So we got the heavy hitters. And you know the extrapolation is well, if their peers reported bad numbers, and they're probably going to report bad numbers too. So you're getting a lot of you know jitteriness in stocks ahead of these earnings reports. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, loving the new setup. How you feeling standing up? Yeah, the the investment analyst Luke Lango, who is now standing. It's amazing, <laughs> right? And the lovely Aaron Davis went and got me a fantastic standing desk, which I built by myself. Pat on the back. Yes, a a plus for handiness. <laughs> And um, I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. There is there is a, a seat under here, so I can sit. But when you do this job, you tend to just sit at your desk for 9, 10, 11 hours a day. It's it's good to stand a little bit. So we're getting back to the standing. Going to get 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 some posture right and we're going to we're going to keep our our health in mind as we try to find <laughs> the right stocks to buy as well. So hopefully it doesn't so so as you stand and you rise, how are the stocks doing today? Are they rising as well today? No, I'm rising. The stocks are not rising. That's that's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, we got some we got some choppiness this a.m. Um, a lot a lot of hesitancy in front of the big earnings reports. So we'll see how those those play out. But stocks definitely had a pretty critical make or break moment, and we're either going to make or break over the next two weeks. So we'll see where we go. But I'm pretty confident we're going to make. So uh, let's let's hope I'm right. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into all of our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. And for even more of Luke's Hypergrowth Insights, check out our free report, Five Hypergrowth Stocks to Buy in 2023, available by clicking the link above or in the description below. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. All right, Luke, let's dive right in. Stocks, like you said, have been choppy ahead of a big earnings slate this week. Are investors nervous that earnings won't deliver? I mean, it does seem somewhat fair, right? Tesla and Netflix did disappoint significantly last week. So what do you have in store for earnings? Alphabet and Microsoft go today, Meta tomorrow, Amazon on Thursday. What is the overall read? Right. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what's going on is that Investors are nervous about the big tech earnings this week because the big tech earnings we got last week were not good. Netflix dropped a bomb. Tesla dropped a bomb. Stocks got crushed. IBM's results weren't great. So now we got now we got the you know but those are those are the junior leaguers. Now we got the heavy hitters on deck. We got Meta. We got Amazon. You got Alphabet. We got Microsoft. Apple comes up pretty soon. So we got the heavy hitters. 
And, you know, the extrapolation is, well, if their peers report bad numbers, then they're probably going to report bad numbers, too. So you're getting a lot of, you know, jitteriness in stocks ahead of these earnings reports. And that makes a ton of sense. Um, it also should be noted that we're at a very critical level. Like if we pull up the the SP, uh, SPX, the chart of the um, – of the SP 500, we are at a super critical level, technically speaking, where bears view it as the level this rally ends and bulls view it as the level the rally gets confirmed. So it's it really that level is, is going to be 4179, 4180. That's the high from February 2nd. Uh, that's where we rallied to in this ahead of this earnings season. We've kind of come off it a little bit because of, of the weak reports we got last week. But this is a very important level. And if we break above that in this earnings season, that would be confirmation that this really is, you know, the start of a new bull market. And if we don't break above it, then the bears will have some ammunition. So that's where we are. We've rallied to a very critical point and the earnings over the next two to three weeks are going to make or break us at this critical point. So, from that perspective, I think we have to understand, of course, there's going to be a ton of nervousness amongst investors going into these earnings reports. And then, yes, you give them a little bit of reason to worry with the Netflix and IBM and Tesla reports, and they're going to worry. They're just going to worry. But Netflix reported horrible earnings because of a delay in timing of a launch of paid sharing efforts in the United States. Basically, they are doing something that nobody has done at the scale – cracking down on passwords. Now, everybody's trying to do it, but Netflix is leading the way. Nobody has done it before. This has been a huge problem. Everyone's known about it. We all share passwords. Our parents, our friends, we, we all share passwords for these streaming services. Netflix is finally, they're, they're carrying the torch. They're cracking down on it. It's going to be a choppy path. It's going to be bumpy. They're not going to do this smoothly. There should be no expectation for them to do it smoothly. And they don't have that expectation either. That's why they're doing these rollouts very, very slowly. They tested here. They tested there. They tested here. Okay, let's learn from those tests and then let's go on to the next one. So very specifically, they launched in Canada. They launched their paid sharing efforts in Canada. And they learned some things, exactly what they learned, I'm not sure. They didn't really disclose it, but <laughs> they learned some things. They're going to incorporate those learnings into their paid sharing launch in, um, in, in the U.S. So that's why they delayed the U.S. launch, not because people are canceling because of the paid sharing stuff, not because uh, the consumer is weak and doesn't want to spend on streaming services, not because uh, their advertising business is struggling. Now, all those things are, are fine, actually. The reason the Q2 guide was weak, which is the reason the stock fell, is because they delayed what was supposed to be a Q1 launch of paid sharing into Q2, meaning the financial benefit of that crackdown got shifted from Q2 to Q3. So Netflix's bad report had nothing to do – it wasn't a bad read on the economy, a bad read on the consumer, a bad read on advertisers. It was simply Netflix saying this is going to be choppy and we're learning things and we're going to get better at rolling out our, our paid sharing uh, crackdown. So – I don't see any negative read-through for everyone else on, on those uh, earnings. Tesla, well, Tesla's doing the exact opposite of what everyone's doing right now. Everyone is cutting costs. Everyone, you know, Meta, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, they're all cutting costs. They're firing employees. They're reducing spend. They're streamlining. That should improve the OpEx space, which should improve margins. 
But what is Tesla doing? They're not cutting costs. They're cutting prices. They're not cutting the things that are the cost of the business. They're cutting the things that are the revenues of the business. So, of course, their margins are going to get hit. It wasn't Tesla's revenues that disappointed. It wasn't Tesla's deliveries that disappointed. It was Tesla's margins that disappointed. Their margins were horrendous last quarter. Automotive gross margins fell to their lowest level since before the pandemic. It, it was ridiculously bad. But – Positive note, the solar business had its best quarter since I think 2021 and the energy storage business had its best quarter ever, something like 360% growth, revenue growth. Margins in the energy business also were much better than expected and continue to improve. So Tesla's bad report had nothing to do with really a, a slowdown in the clean energy transition. It, it provided a read through that the electric vehicle industry is going through a price war right now led by Tesla, and that's hurting margins. So I don't think that provides a weak read-through for the consumer or for the energy business. I think it provides a, a weak read-through for electric vehicle companies, and, and that's that's about it. IBM, I thought IBM results were actually pretty good. They said that cloud spending is pretty strong. SAP also reported good numbers. They said cloud spending is pretty strong. Enterprise software spending is pretty strong. So they actually provided pretty positive read-through. So even though the headline earnings disappointed last week, and the stocks reacted negatively. A lot of the stocks reacted negatively. I thought once you dug through those reports and really understood what was going on, they provided positive reads on what should be reported this week. So I remain very optimistic that this week's earnings reports will be a lot better than last week's earnings reports. That I think, you know, Alphabet and Microsoft go today. So by the time this podcast is released, uh, the viewers already know what's what's happened there. But I think digital advertising trends have stabilized and improved slightly here in 2023. I think that you're going to see a lot of upside lift on margins, especially at Meta and especially at Amazon, because they are doing significant cost cutting, mostly through personnel reductions, but also through the integration of automation and software and things like that. So I think you're going to get real upside surprises on margins um, I think that e-commerce spending – well, I think consumer spending has remained pretty healthy. It is it is weakening, but I think it's remained resilient. And then I also think that e-commerce is kind of having a bit of a comeback because you know we had the pandemic where we did nothing but shop online. And then we had 2021 where we uh, – in 2022 where we did nothing but shop out because we wanted to get out this pent-up demand to do things. And now we've kind of normalized. So I think e-commerce is having a bit of a comeback. So I actually think that these firms are going to report pretty, pretty good numbers, and that's going to cause us to go – higher over the next few weeks. Now, that might not be the case, and we could drop down. But even if that's not the case, I don't think it's a deal breaker uh, for the stock market. But if I'm looking at the individual reports coming out, I'm pretty optimistic on Meta, and I'm pretty optimistic on Amazon. Uh, though Amazon's exposure to um, consumer spending internationally is a bit more of a concern to me because I think the U.S. economy is holding up a lot better than the international markets right now. So that is a bit of a concern to me. But I think, you know, Amazon looks good. I think Meta looks great. And I think Alphabet looks great going into the report. I might sound like a fool because tomorrow, you know, when this is released, <laughs> the Apple reported bad earnings and they go down 7 or 8%. So I may look like a fool right now. But I think that Alphabet's going to report pretty good numbers. I think Meta's going to report pretty good numbers. I think Amazon should be pretty strong. And Microsoft is pretty much always pretty strong. It's just a matter of how investors interpret it. So I do think this week is going to provide positive upside surprises for investors and, and for the stock market. And the fact that we're selling off into it is really good from a positioning perspective. If we rallied hard into it, then that means we would need really good results 
to juice us even higher. But the fact that we rallied and then came off and now we're dropping into these reports means we don't need perfection for stocks to bounce on the reports. We just need good enough to ease fears about a recession because that's what this whole trade is about right now. It's recession, recession, recession. Basically, in 2022, we were all afraid of rate hikes and inflation. In 2020, or at least the markets were all afraid of rate hikes and inflation. In 2023, the markets don't give two flying Fs about inflation. They don't give two flying Fs about rate hikes anymore, outside of the fact as it relates to recession. Inflation is dead. Recession risks are now very real. And that is what the market is fearful for. Because today, we got a bunch of new data. Yesterday, we got a bunch of new data showing Inflation is rolling over faster than, than last week, than the week before, and the week before that. Inflation is dying so fast, it's not even funny. Look at oil. Where's oil? Where's oil? 76. 70, going down to 75. We've wiped out all of the OPEC. You know, OPEC comes in with this massive emergency production cut. Oil jumps from 76 to 80, pops up to 83. We told you it was a stabilizing cut, not a price boosting cut. Guess where we are? We wiped out all those gains, round trip back to 76. Deflation is the name of the game right now. That is the trend. But does the Fed see it? Because if the Fed doesn't see it, if the Fed remains stubborn and continues to keep their foot on the gas, they're going to drive us into a brick wall and the car is going to crash. And that is what investors are fearful for. We've made that that shift where for you know six to nine months, bad economic news was good market news because it would prompt the Fed pivot. Now we're at the point where the economic news is so bad that bad economic news is bad market news because the Fed's not listening. All we need is the Fed to come out and say, hey, we understand the economy's not doing well and we understand inflation's rolling over. So we're going to pause our campaign. As soon as they do that, boom, we're off to the races. But until they do that, this is going to be a market that is paralyzed by fear of a recession that the Fed may drive us into. So that that's that's pretty much you know big picture where we are today with things. So going back to last week with those earnings, what were the expectations of those earnings calls calls going into last week? Things were, I mean, we rallied in the, in the last week. You know, stocks mm-hmm. were on a solid uptrend into those earnings reports, and those earnings reports kind of broke the back of the of the uptrend. So that's an expectations thing, right? We rallied into them. They disappointed. We sold off out of them. Now with positioning is 180 degrees different. We're selling off into these reports. And if they surprise the upside, we can rally out of them. So you might get a little, you know, a flipping of the, of the scenario here. And so I think that's exactly what is going to happen. We had elevated expectations last week, disappointing results, follow through is negative. We have now reduced expectations, upside surprises, and we're going to have a, a positive follow through. That that at least is my two cents on the situation. And historically speaking, I, I wasn't able to look at this data. I wasn't able to quantify it really. But in all my years of doing this, I've seen the market get fooled so many times by the Netflix and Tesla reports. That you have to understand, <laughs> Netflix and Tesla are like fundamentally different companies. I mean, they're very unique. Tesla sells electric vehicles in an economically sensitive auto market, right? So it's on one hand very sensitive to cycles in the economy because the automotive market is sensitive to cycles in the economy, but it's in the hyper growth vertical of that economically sensitive part of the, uh, uh, of the economy. So it's kind of like, ah, you know, it, it's a very unique situation. Netflix, we're paying, you know, it used to be 10 bucks. Now it's 15 bucks a month. I mean, 
in a deep, deep, deep recession, yes, people are, are canceling their Netflix. But in a shallow recession, I don't think people are canceling their Netflix. So, you know, and then now with the ad tier, that kind of complicates things entirely in terms of the economics of it. So these are unique businesses. And I've seen many times over the past seven to eight years where – because Netflix and Tesla always report the week before all the big tech firms. So mm-hmm. Netflix and Tesla put out two good reports. And then we rally super hard because everyone's like, oh, Microsoft's going to go good too. Uh, Tesla, or, um, Alphabet's going to be great. Meta's going to be great. Amazon's going to be great. Apple's going to be great. And so we rally super hard. And then those reports hit and it's like, oh, wait, these aren't that great. Then I've seen the opposite happen where Tesla and Netflix are you know, terrible. And everyone just we sell off. Everyone's like, oh, Meta's going to throw up a dud. Amazon's going to throw up a dud. And then they throw up great reports. And then we rally strong out of it. I've seen that happen so many times. The market gets confused in thinking that what Tesla and Netflix report is similar to what you know Meta's going to report and Amazon's going to report and Apple's going to report and Microsoft's going to report when, in fact, they're very different. Now, the latter group, they're very similar. What Meta reports is very similar to what Alpha reports. What Microsoft reports is very similar to what Apple reports, very similar to what Amazon reports. So those move in tandem. But they are distinct from Netflix and Tesla. So the fact that the market's kind of jumping it all together uh, gives me hope that these earnings will, you know, our fundamental thesis is cost cuts and resilient spending will drive upside surprises at these companies. I I remain highly convicted in in that thesis. Mm. So let's take a look at those two scenarios then because it seems pretty binary. Either Mm -hmm. earnings are good or they aren't. So what happens over the next few months in each of those scenarios? Right. So let's say earnings are are good. Then what I see happening is, you know, we get the sell-off into the prints. We get the upside surprise. We get positive follow-through. S&P 500 burst above that 40, what was it, 4180? Is that the level I said? I like to say 4200 to make it nice and round. But yeah, 4180. We burst above that 4180 level. And we take a big leg higher into the Fed meeting in May. The Fed hikes rates in May, but it's a dovish hike like the March meeting. So it's 25, but it's very dovish language, very dovish outlook, prospects for a pause, prospects for, for us you know, not continuing this rate hike path. Um, we're seeing disinflation. We're seeing credit crunch because that's the thing is that there, people are talking about the banking crisis is, is totally eased. Well, I mean, it has from the perspective of banks aren't failing anymore, but banking, bank lending standards have gone up significantly. When you look at small business surveys and those surveys, you know, the, you know, all these companies go out, they ask all these small business owners, how hard is it to get a loan? What are lending conditions looking like? Those surveys are pointing towards significantly tighter credit conditions than before the crisis. That ever since the crisis hit, it is much harder to get a loan, especially a sizable loan, from regional banks, which is what small businesses tap all the time. So we're seeing those credit conditions tightening. I think the Fed's going to acknowledge all that stuff. We're seeing unemployment start to really become an issue. The labor market is absolutely cracking. Sure, the headline unemployment rate is 3.5% or 3.4%, whatever it is. I don't even pay attention to the number because it's such a lagging indicator. That's the last domino to fall. If you wait for that to go up, you are shooting way behind the duck. When you look at the leading indicators of employment, Specifically, um, war notices, when you look at the volatility and jobless claims, the state-level volatility and jobless claims. For example, about one-third of states right now are reporting continuing jobless claims that are 30% higher than they were last year, meaning that 
one out of every three states in America is seeing jobless claims right now up 30% from a year ago. That means the economically sensitive states in America are getting hit hard right now, very hard. That is always what happens. It's always the first domino to fall in the labor market. So the labor market is cracking. It's cracking. So I think the Fed is going to acknowledge all of these things in May, and that's going to be a that's why it's going to be a dovish hike. So I think we rally after that. So if we get good earnings, we get good earnings, we pop on the good earnings. Then we go into May, we get that dovish hike. We we pop on that because it shows the Fed is in this dovish evolution. And then I think throughout May, we get really soft inflation data from April because that's what the leading indicators show is that April inflation data is going to be exceptionally weak. For example, yesterday, this was, this was the, the weakest inflation report I've ever seen in my life. Um, Dallas Fed manufacturing report. So Dallas Fed, they go out and they survey all the businesses in Texas in the manufacturing sector, ask them a bunch of questions. One of them is, how are the prices you pay for goods trending? How are the prices you're receiving for goods trending? Two different indices, prices paid, prices received. And what are your expectations for the prices you pay for things six months here too and the prices you receive for things six months in, in the future? So when you look at those expectations index indices, the prices paid expectations and the prices received expectations. Well, in Texas, in that Texas survey, Dallas Manufacturing Survey, the prices paid expectations index dropped from 24.9 in March to 7.6 in April. Prices received dropped from 18.6 in March to 1.3 in April. That prices paid in expectations index at 7.6 is the lowest since April 2020 when we were climbing out of the pandemic. It is also the third lowest reading of the past decade since 2010. There have only been two readings lower since 2010 on the prices paid expectations index in that survey. That's ridiculous. And what we got, you know, last month in April or this month in April. The prices received also the lowest since April 2020, and it is the fourth lowest since 2010. On a composite basis, the expectations for prices index dropped from 43.5 to 8.9. There are only three readings weaker throughout the entire 2010s. And all three times, inflation was about 1% six months later. That is the weakest inflation report I have seen yet, and it is a very strong leading indicator of inflation. Again, today we got the Philly Fed Services one, shows the exact same thing, massive drops in those in those price indices. I'm still digging through the other ones that were released this morning to figure out you know, where they're trending. But long story short, inflation is rolling over. The April inflation reports that come out in May are going to be very, 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 very soft. So I think we rally on those soft inflation reports in May. And then we're also going to rally on soft labor reports because I think the labor market's also going to show more cracks. Then I think we get to the long overdue, highly anticipated Fed pause in June. Fed pauses systematically spark stock market rallies. Now, there's a lot of confusing analysis out there saying, oh, be careful what you wish for when the Fed pivots, stocks crash. No, 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 no. When the Fed goes from not hiking to cutting, that's when stocks crash. That is when stocks crash. But when the Fed goes from hiking to not hiking, that's when stocks rally. There's two transition points here. Hike to pause, pause to drop. Hike to pause is rally time. Pause to drop 
it's history is mixed on that. Sometimes it means a sell off. Sometimes it means a rally. It's a it's a mixed signal. <laughs> there's there's nothing you can really glean from that. But what you can't can, can glean from is hike to pause equals rally. That's what you can glean from. And so that's what I think that um what the the outlook looks like if you are if we get strong earnings right now. We get strong earnings rally. Dovish Fed hike in May rally, soft inflation, soft labor data in May, rally, Fed pause in June, rally. So this could be the start of what would be a massive three-month upturn in the stock market. If earnings are weak, I think you get the exact same thing. If earnings are weak, I think what happens is we roll over into the in, in, into the Fed May meeting. So when I look at the uptrend channel, the S&P has formed ever since uh, – ever since that October low that it put in. If we roll over, the lower side of that channel is about, what, 39.50? So I think what would happen is we roll down to 39.50 over the next two weeks if earnings are bad. So we get, that's a, that's a what? That's a, that's a three to 4% drop in stock. So you get a three to 4% drop in the market over the next two to three weeks if earnings are bad. And, and if those earnings are bad, then the Fed is going to actually be more inclined to sound and stocks are falling. Then the Fed's going to be more inclined to sound really dovish at its May meeting because they want to keep the economy and the market in guardrails. They don't want it to get too hot, risk reinflation. And they don't want it to get too cold, risk a recession. So they want to keep it in the guardrails. If we are coming in cold, into that meeting, they're going to sound dovish. That's what they've always done. They always push us back into the guardrails. We come in hot, they sound hawkish to get us back in the guardrails. We come in cold, they sound dovish to bring us back into the guardrails. It's what they do, and they've done it for the past year. So they're going to do the same thing in May. So if we get bad earnings, we roll over, drop 3 to 4% to that 39.50 level, which is a solid trend line support level in the market. I think we find support there because I think then the Fed comes in, saves the day with dovish rhetoric, boom. We rally on that. And then I think we get the same, the same scenario. We get soft inflation data in May, soft labor data in May, Fed pause in June, boom, up, up, and away. So it's really just a matter of what happens over the next two weeks. I don't know. Two or three weeks. I don't know. We, we may break above 4180 and boom off to the races or we come down to 39.50. Either way, I think it's off to the races by May, June, July because soft inflation data and Fed pause. And that's going to cause a big rally. So that's how I view things right now. That's why I'm very bullish. I think the risk rewards setup here looks very, very favorable for the bulls. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds incredibly exciting um so let's rapid fire a few industries and i want to know whether or not our viewers should buy stocks in these industries for this 2023 market rebound or not okay so first up electric vehicles yep um you know evs evs are tough right now because of what tesla is doing and actually I mean, Tesla's smart, man, and it, it's going to hurt everybody. They're, price, they're the one company that can really withstand the price cuts, right? Because they're operating, I mean, before the price cuts, they're operating at 25 30% automotive gross margins. Nobody else in the industry operates at those gross margins. No other automaker, mainstream automaker, operates at 25 30% gross margin. So they have much more margin buffer to absorb price cuts than anybody else. So what they're doing is absolutely genius for them. It's going to hurt everybody else, though. It's going to hurt everybody else uh, tremendously. So I think in the EV industry, you got short-term pain. But for the winners, you got long-term gain for the really solid companies. And I still think 
Lucid, Rivian, Fisker make it into that boat. I expect a lot of short-term pain for those names. I don't think they're going to rebound anytime soon. But if you're a long-term investor, I think you're getting great blockbuster prices on those stocks at current levels. And there is massive asset appreciation potential over the next three, five, seven, ten years. Now, I just test drove a Lucid this past weekend. And I can tell you that that is the best made, most powerful vehicle in the market. It is crazy. It is absolutely absurd, the power of that vehicle. They have this thing called launch mode where you kind of – you pull off to the side and you you slam your foot on the brake all the way down. And then you slam your foot on the gas all the way down. And then it kind of like charges up. And then this little bear, the California bear, appears – and then you let go of the brake, boom, and you just boom, and you're like a rocket ship. I mean, it is literally like a rocket ship. I have never felt that sort of acceleration in a vehicle before. And I'm not a big sport car racing guy, but that acceleration was absolutely absurd. And I just saw a video, my friend passed along a video, it was, you know, the Lucid Air Sapphire, which is their new premium vehicle, the $250,000 one. Versus a Bugatti and a Tesla Model S Plaid in in a short distance race. And the Sapphire just crushed everybody. And so, I mean, they have technologically made the best vehicle in the market, in in my opinion. And the the interior specs are great. The features, the, the technology, the seats. I mean, it's a very comfortable, powerful, high quality vehicle. I truly believe at the end of the day, the value of the business, of, a, of any business, is going to revert to the value of the product the business makes. Okay, That's what I truly believe. And in our business, I, I, I really try to um, emphasize that to everybody that, that works at Investor Place, that the value of what we sell is going to revert to the value of the product we put out for people, the value of, of our editorial content, the value of our stock picks, the value of the research we provide. That is, that is ultimately the value of the business. And so I think that when you look at Lucid, there's no car better than it in the electric vehicle space, maybe even the entire auto market you know, for less than a couple hundred thousand dollars. So I think the value of the business is fine. Are they burning cash? Yeah, are they having trouble making cars? Yes, those are growing pains. When you have a product that is that good, these are just growing pains. At the end of the day, I think the value of the business will reverse the value of the product and the value of the product is unmatched. I think the value of the business could be unmatched in the future. So I remain very bullish long-term on Lucid. And I think the, the Saudi backing is a really big thing that really reduces bankruptcy risk, really reduces insolvency risk because you got you know basically the, the deepest pockets in the world behind you. So I, I really like what's going on there long-term from a product development perspective. I think Rivian's doing a lot of things right, and I think Fisker has has is doing a lot of things right as well from the platform sharing business model. Rivian's got a really unique product offering. So yes, I think those companies are going to get really hurt by Tesla's price price war, but I think they're going to survive it. And I think on the other side of it, they can become very 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 valuable companies. So when you look at the EV space, you're trying to rapid fire me on EV stocks. Got to ask yourself the question: Why are you investing in them? Are you investing them to make a quick buck in 2023? Don't do it. Don't do it because they won't do it for you. They won't. But are you investing in them because you believe that in the next three, five, seven, ten years, you can quadruple, quintuple, six times, seven times, eight times, nine times, even ten times your money? Then do it. Absolutely do it. Now is the perfect time to do it. 
So you got to ask yourself that question, answer that question, and then make the move. That's that's my take on EV stocks right now. All right. Uh, next up, clean energy, solar, hydrogen, energy storage, etc. Uh, yeah, I think so. When we looked at the Tesla results, right, they were very, very strong on the uh, energy storage side of things and very, very strong on the solar side of things. Um, so I think that there's actually a lot of good momentum in that space and Tesla's results prove that. So I would be, I think those are not just great long-term winners. I think they have a lot of short-term outside potential here in 2023 as well. Okay. Uh, oil and gas. <laughs> For our audio oh, listeners, on, uh, we just give a big oh, oh. thumbs down. Listen, OPEC Plus comes in here, and they, they announce this massive emergency cut to keep prices up. And it can't even keep prices up for more than two weeks. What's the bull thesis? I don't get the bull thesis. You, you, you've had – I mean everything that was supposed to happen for the bulls happened, and yet prices are stuck at 75 What's the bull thesis? I don't get the bull thesis. I don't understand. Energy stocks have gone nowhere. I don't get the bull thesis. They rallied big in early 2022 and then they've gone nowhere. They're topping at a very critical technical top that they've never broken. So I don't really get the bull thesis. I I don't understand it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I I was at a wedding and I was having this discussion with with a friend too and uh, his – outlook was that uh oil could get back to 100 based on what's going on in europe right now with some of the delays in their uh alternative energy infrastructure goals and not being able to meet them by and shifting and pushing back the the dates to meet those goals does that have any bearing um what i know about europe right now is that their natural gas storage is about to hit a five-year high because Mm -hmm. they successfully curbed demand if supply is that high on the natural gas side of things, and I believe it's also true for oil, then if those reserves are that high, supply is that high, and demand is weakening right now because of you know the economic situation, lower demand, high supply, that means lower prices regardless of what's going on with the energy transition. And actually, I think if, if you look at the energy transition in Europe and in America and really everywhere – there's going to be hiccups. Like I said, it's kind of like the growing pains with Netflix during the Patriot. There's going to be hiccups, but it's going to happen. If 2021, 2022 convinced me of anything, <laughs> it's that the energy transition is going to happen. We had an opportunity. The world had an opportunity after Russia invaded Ukraine to say, you know what? Forget the energy transition. Let's just produce more oil and natural gas on our own. And the world unanimously said no. Everywhere said no. Even oil and gas companies themselves said no. You know where they're taking all their excess profits? They're paying dividends, buying back shares, and investing in renewables. They're not opening up new oil and gas projects. So we had an opportunity to say yes to fossil fuels again, and nobody said yes to fossil fuels again. I, I, I Long term, I don't see the thesis. And then short term, Economy's weakening, supply's still high. All that oil that was supposed to get cut off the market by Russia is just going to China and moving around the globe. So really there's no supply shortage at all. OPEC's trying to create a supply shortage, but you know, Biden's still draining the SPR. Demand's weakening. I don't I don't see the thesis. I've been hearing 
you know, when oil wasn't 120, I heard 200. Then everybody forgot about that. Oh, we never said that. Forget about that. Now everyone's <laughs> saying 100. And I bet in, in six months, like, oh, we never said that. Now we're going to say oil's at 70 because oil's even down to 50. So my, my opinion is that it's just the investment worked for a hot six months and that was it. And it hasn't worked for the past 12 months and it won't work for the next 12 months and it won't work for the next 10 years. So I don't know what people are doing in oil and gas. I would get completely out of that. That's my two cents at least. But you guys know I've had that position for a while. Um, <laughs> and we, we, we've been right on it. You know, we were one mm-hmm. of the very few people that when oil was at 120, we were loud over here pounding on the table saying short that so hard. Short it, mm-hmm. short it, short it, short it, short it. Um, and we ended up being right about that. So not to say we haven't been right about it, but I have had a unilateral stance on this, a one-sided stance on this, where I've been very anti-oil and gas, very anti-fossil fuels, very anti-natural gas and all the companies related to it. They're dinosaurs that breathe the last breath, and I'm going to say sayonara, good riddance, time to move on. <laughs> all right. Uh, consumer, defensive, and staple stocks. Yeah, these are interesting. I like the dollar stores. I think the dollar stores are like in that really good spot right now. I think Walmart, too, where – the economy is slowing, but it's not collapsing. So we're worried, but we're not killing our spending, right? So we're like, you know what? Yeah, I want to save a few bucks, but I still want to get stuff. That puts you in the dollar store. That puts you in Walmart. I think those guys have a really, really good growth outlook over the next six to 12 months. I think they could be a real big winner in the next uh, uh, next quarter, two quarters, three quarters going into the holiday 2023. So I, I, I like consumer defensive in that nature. Uh, in terms of names like Clorox and Procter and Gamble, I mean they're probably good bets, but I don't know much about them. Um, so and I can't really comment on that. But I, I do like the dollar stores and more of that kind of safety consumer spending trade. I, I think that's that's a good place to be right now. Uh, consumer discretionary stocks. Yeah, that's that one's tough. That one's that one's really tough because. I mean, the consumer is still spending, but they're they're slowing, so that puts them in the dollar store. But you know. When you look at more premium type products, you know, so there's uh, we, we, there were a wave of retail stocks that kind of came public over the last two or three years. The, the trendy retail stocks, as I like to call them, and they've really struggled. Um, Allbirds is one of them. So Allbirds, really trendy athletic apparel shoe. They've struggled significantly. In the past, you know, three to four months selling shoes and moving product. Brilliant Earth. My opinion, future of the diamond industry, future of the ring industry. They were growing like light speed. They really struggled over the past three to four months moving diamonds. So those are consumer discretionary. I think the worst for that industry is over. And I think when you look at a stock like Brilliant Earth, you look at a stock like Allbirds, I think you look at a stock like Nike, you want to get into the bigger boys, you look at a stock like Crocs, which actually is doing really well because it's in that sweet spot of being pretty affordable still. When you look at a stock like Celsius, I think you have winners. I think you have stocks or companies that, you know, had a really bad few months I think the consumer is going to start stabilizing and the outlook for the consumer is going to start improving once the Fed becomes more dovish. Because you've got to remember, this is an entirely Fed-driven sell-off. The Fed's at the wheel here. If they stop, the car should stop. The economy should stop slowing. 
So I really believe that because this is an entirely Fed-driven slowdown, it can be an entirely Fed-driven recovery as well. And consumer discretionary stocks could be some of the biggest winners in the event we get that Fed pause in June. So I, I like I like the space. All right. Uh, advertising stocks. Same situation as consumer discretionary because advertising follows consumer discretionary spending. Ad spending follows consumer discretionary spending. When consumers are spending money, advertisers are out there trying to get their money. When consumers aren't spending money, advertisers aren't out there trying to get their money. So they're going to follow consumer discretionary stocks. I think consumer discretionary spending has the potential to stabilize and rebound over the next six to 12 months. So I think that advertising has a, pen, uh, a chance to stabilize and rebound over the next six to 12 months too. And I really like the connected TV advertising space because I think there is still a ton. Uh, I don't get at all, and I, maybe I'll offend some people with this, but I don't get at all why people still have cable TV. I just, I don't get it. I don't get why linear TV is still a thing. With YouTube TV, with Sling, with Fubo, with all these options out there, why on earth are you paying more for a more limiting package and an uglier package? It doesn't make any sense to me. With YouTube TV, we're YouTube TV people. You know, we pay, what, 70 bucks a month, and we get YouTube TV on every like I could get it here. I could, I got a screen here. I could get it here. I got a screen here. I could get it here. I could get I could get it downstairs on our TV. I can get it in my in our bedroom on our TV. I, I, anywhere in the house, I can get it on my phone. Last night, I'm, I'm at a I'm at the uh, In and Out drive through in my car, sitting there watching the Lakers Memphis game on YouTube TV. Can you do that with cable? I don't I don't get why people are on cable TV at all. I, I really don't get it at all. And so when I have a situation like that, I just assume everyone's gonna act rationally eventually and everyone's gonna switch to one of these uh you know these streaming live TV options and all the ad dollars are gonna follow suit. All of those ad dollars stuck in these antiquated linear TV channels are going to shift into the streaming TV channel. And so I think there's a, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars that need to shift. And I think that the digital advertising space will grow nicely over the next six to 12 months. But what's going to lead that growth, what's going to be the fastest growing vertical is going to be connected TV ad spending, in my opinion. So that puts you in the wheelhouse of Roku. That puts you in the wheelhouse of Alphabet because of YouTube, YouTube TV. That puts you in the wheelhouse. I think Meta can actually win a little bit of that. So I, it puts you in the wheelhouse of those, those big ad stocks. And I think they, they can do... Uh, very well over the next six to 12 months. Uh, enterprise software stocks. Love them. Love enterprise software here. They fell to their cheapest valuations in the past, what, seven or eight years, a seven or eight year low on valuations, P multiple, 4P multiple basis in the software sector. Rebounding very strongly from those, those trials. Uh, really nice technical uptrend in the industry. Uh, like I said, SAP, IBM last week did report solid cloud spending. I think that what's going to be a huge priority for businesses in 2023 is going to be how do we become smarter? How do we become more efficient? How do we become just better at doing things with less, do more with less? Uh, and the answer to that across the board is software, 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 software. Get this software package that can do what six employees can do, but it does it, you know, in, in one little package. Um, that is, I think that's going to be a huge priority. And so I think enterprise software stocks have a lot of upside potential in 2023. I do think there is a very strong bull thesis for them. Semiconductor stocks. Semis had a massive rebound and I think maybe they're going to slow down, but then they're going to boom higher. So, um, 
They've actually been kind of the leaders in the stock market rebound since the lows in late 2022. They're very economically sensitive, so they're going to be on edge until the Fed pivots. Until the Fed actually pauses its rate hike campaign, semi-stocks are going to be on edge now. They've had a huge rally. They're going to consolidate. And then I think once the pause happens, boom, outlook improves. When you look at all of these companies, that the semis that have reported so far, who are the semis that have reported? Uh, LRCX, TCMC, STX, I mean, these are semis, data center companies. They pretty much all said the industry is weak right now. But the second half of 2023 should see a big rebound. That's pretty much what they all said. So I think that that is how things will play out so long as the Fed does pause rate hike campaign by June. Then I do think you get a massive second half rebound in the semiconductor industry, which will be coincided with a, uh, a big semiconductor stock rebound. So. All right. Uh, next up on the list, uh, e-commerce stocks. Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit. Um, consumer spending resilient. Digital shift feels like it's a little bit back in vogue. So I think e-commerce stocks, I mean, Amazon's going to give us the best read on it, but I think e-commerce stocks do have have good potential. I think Etsy, Shopify, names like that, beaten up, low valuations, starting to break out of their downtrends, forming new uptrends above their, their long-term moving averages, their critical moving averages. Um, I th- and with some fundamental catalysts for consumer spending trends to improve in the next six to 12 months, I think that those stocks can do well. So, yes, not as bullish on them as some of the other ones you talked about, but definitely bullish still. Okay. Uh, travel stocks. Mixed bag, right? Because travel is very economically sensitive, but people still have that travel bug. So well, how long is that going to last? I don't know. It's a big, it's a great question. It's kind of dying down a little bit, but it kind of a mixed bag in the travel sector. It depends on, on an individual basis. I wouldn't say this is a rising tide lifts all boats situation by any means, because I do think the travel bug is dying a little bit. And if the economy does weaken materially, then, you know, consumer demand, desire and ability to travel is, is going to weaken. So it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. You got it de- depends on what you're looking at. I think international travel probably has a weaker outlook than domestic travel. Uh, but I think domestic travel does have a pretty good outlook. So it kind of all depends. Very mixed bag in that industry. Uh, China stocks. Oh, Owen's tough. <laughs> I'd have to say China stocks are, I mean, the rebound play feels like it's already happened, but I've said that multiple times and it keeps going. So I've been wrong on China stocks. I have been. <laughs> and so that, that gives me a little bit less confidence in making a call there. But I'm going to stick by the thesis that it's it's just a very risky environment. And... I think there are better risk-reward profiles out there than what what is offered in China right now. Okay. Uh, emerging market stocks. Yeah, so that, that's what I do like as opposed to China. I kind of like – I like Latin America. I think Latin America is a really good place to be right now because the dollar is weakening. I think that's going to really help those Latin American stocks. I think those economies are on a bit not surer footing but more predictable footing than, than over in China. Um, so I do like emerging market stocks, especially focused on, on the LATAM sector, LATAM being Latin America. Okay. And last on the list, sports betting stocks. 
Yeah, we're seeing lots of sports betting um, because, you know, the Super Bowl kind of started with a huge Super Bowl uh, sports betting take and the NBA playoffs are seeing quite a bit of it. So we're seeing a lot of sports betting, uh, getting a lot of traction. Sports viewership's actually going up. I think I just got that notification that the Kings-Warriors game yesterday was like one of the most watched playoff games in 21 years or something like that. Some amazing stat. I may be wrong on that. I just saw the push notification. So kind of remembering it a little bit. But anyways, viewership has been strong in the NBA playoffs too. So... Uh, I think that, yeah, I think sports betting stocks have, have a pretty decent outlook. Now, again, as you know, I'm not a huge bull in the sports betting industry because I think it's very commoditized and they're just going to eat each other up and the margins aren't going to be there and the profits aren't going to be there. But if the story is there for a 12-month stretch, the stocks can work, even if the long-term thesis isn't that great. So long-term, not very bullish on, on sports betting uh, stocks, bullish on the sports betting sector, not bullish on the companies in, in that sector's ability to consistently generate big cash flows and profits. But in the short term, if the story is good enough, the stocks can't work and the story looks like it could be good enough over the next 12 months. It's also worth mentioning that during recessions and slowdowns and periods of, of, of uh, tough economic growth and in tough labor markets, uh, that's when things like betting and uh, gambling <laughs> go up because, you know, it's kind of a vice and people like to take those vices uh, when uh, or do those vices, partake in those vices. Uh, when things aren't going well, they don't feel great about their lives. So that's that's also worth mentioning. All right. Well, that covers all of our main topics, but we definitely have some fan questions this week, starting off with Steve in the mountains. Apple recently announced its partnership with GS, now making a savings account available to customers with a 4.15 interest rate. Uh, do you see Apple as a serious threat to SoFi in the fintech arena? And do you think it's possible that Apple could even acquire SoFi in the future? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about that Apple account. Absolutely. A ton of talk. I mean, went to grab, you know, some drinks the other day and everybody was talking about it. So it's uh, it's definitely buzzy. I think it's going to get a lot of traction. And I think it does show that Apple is very interested in the space. Will it provide competition for SoFi? Absolutely. In the same way that Rivian provides competition for Tesla. In the same way that Lucid provides competition for Tesla. Uh, so absolutely, it's a fight competition. Is there room for more than one winner in this space? Absolutely. I think there's a couple couple takeaways. One, the move by Apple into the space cements the death of a lot of these other fintech startups not named SoFi. So there's this one called Dave, right? It's backed by Mark Cuban. I think that one's dead. Um, there's a couple other ones out there that are trying to do what SoFi does. I think they're dead. Because Apple's in the space, they're going to eat market share and those guys are going to die. Two, I think it does cement SoFi as one of the few leaders in the space. So I think that's actually a positive. And then three, I think it means that this industry is going to grow by a whole bunch. I mean, when Apple gets into uh, a space, it tends to grow by a whole bunch. Apple getting into the, the fintech space, the, the neobank space, it will allow the whole space to grow a bunch. Can SoFi grow market share in that space? I still think so, yes, because I think they got some very unique offerings. It's going to take time for Apple to learn its way through this industry. Um, could Apple make a play for SoFi? It's not in Apple's wheelhouse to normally make plays like that, but could happen. Could happen. Wouldn't count on it. Wouldn't bake into the bull thesis, but it could happen. But I don't think Apple competition is something you need to worry about with SoFi. I think it's just going to grow the industry and there's enough market share up for grabs that SoFi can continue to grow alongside Apple for several years to come. All right. Uh, next question from Sabjorn Singlestad. Do you believe in Maxian Solar Technologies? 
you know, my understanding is they're a very high quality uh, solar company that, again, the value of the business refers to the value of the product. And I, I, it's my understanding, based on my research, that Maxion's product is a very high quality product in the solar industry. So, therefore, I think uh, Maxion stock, MAX sends a ticker. I, th- I think it is as good a solar play as, as any out there. And I think there are some better, excuse me for saying that. There are definitely some better, but I think it is in that tier one of, of solar plays out there for sure. All right. Uh, last question from Sid Pridg. Uh, what do you think of Neo? Great product. Tough. Uh, it's China. Tough business. Um, I think the stock is really cheap, but I think the potential is uh, – the risks are also high simply because of the China exposure. So the way I look at Neo is I was really bullish on it when there weren't many EV options, pure play EV options. But now you got a lot of pure play EV options. You got Tesla, you got Lucid, you got Rivian, you got Fisker, you got Canoe, you got Neo, you got BYD, you got um, Xpeng. I mean, there's so many pure play EV options, and now you got. You know, Volkswagen and Ford and GM and all their electrification efforts going on. So with so many EV options out there and pretty much all of the stocks really depressed and really cheap, you know, everything has an opportunity cost. If I decide to invest in this thing, it's money that's not going to this thing. And I look at the EV sector and I have all these choices. First choice isn't Neo. Second choice isn't Neo. Third choice isn't Neo. Fourth choice isn't Neo. At that point in time, I'm running out of money. So I, I don't know, you know, Neo is fine. But if you're bullish on the EV industry, bullish on EV stocks, bullish on the potential in the long term, I think there are better options out there, multiple better options out there to the point where money allocation in Neo for most investors won't make a lot of sense at this point in time. All right. Well, great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Uh, Before we get to Luke's last words, some bittersweet news. Uh, This will be the penultimate episode of HGI. Next week will be our last episode. Uh, To be completely transparent, Luke and I love doing this podcast. Uh, This decision comes at a time when our workloads are becoming increasingly more with a lot of responsibilities to our parent company. And as much as we would love to continue in this format, Right now, unfortunately, it just isn't in the cards. Uh, Next week, we'll be taking a look back on what we've accomplished doing this weekly podcast for over a year now. And we'd love to know what you all have enjoyed most about the podcast. So please send Luke and I some HGI love in the comments that we can include next week. Luke, any last words before we wrap? There's a link somewhere. (laughs) Aaron, where is that link? Point them to this link. The link is in the description. Uh, It is uh, to your free report, five hypergrowth stocks to buy in 2023. If you guys click that link enough, we might be able to stay on the air for a little bit longer. So if you like it, if you like the podcast, you click that link enough times, maybe I can show the powers that be, hey, these people actually really care about what we do. Maybe we'll be on for more than two or three weeks. So anyways, the, uh, the ultimate fate of the podcast is in your hands, as it always has been. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Please, once again, share some HGI love. Uh, We'd love to share 
with you guys all in our last episode with as many of you as possible. Again, once for even more of Luke's hypergrowth insights, check out our free report, Five Hypergrowth Stocks to Buy in 2023, available by clicking the link above or in the description below. And like Luke said, more of you that click on it, maybe we can stretch this out a little longer. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye all.